Welcome, beautiful thinkers. So I don't have an interview for you today, preparing this episode one week in advance. By the time you listen to this, I might well be in Cihuatanejo in Guerrero, attending the Greater Reset with independent journalist Derek Bros and listening to many of the speakers that he's lined up to try to ask the question, how can we make a better world when perhaps there, there are people who, who prefer to reduce our liberty or reduce our health. So <laughs> I hope, uh, well, maybe some, some of you have tuned into that. Now, this episode, I've been thinking a lot about how to contextualize information and how having some media savviness would really help a lot of people out there decrease the amount of fear that's going on in the world if you just stop and, and ask three questions. Three questions. What's the agenda? What's the context? And what's the content? So in this episode, I'll explore those three questions and give you some examples. As I say in the episode, don't intend to try to convince you of any particular point of view. What I'm trying to do is give you some tools that you can use to analyze the information that you receive. And hopefully that will alleviate fear and help, thing, help people see things in a clearer way. I will leave some links in, in the description or in the post on the website. But a lot of these things, they don't require citations because I'm just talking about logic and philosophy you know, and analysis these things are principles and the idea is to use them or look at them, examine information using these techniques and see for yourself whether they bring you to greater truth. So these, these things don't really require citations. They don't require sources for me to ask questions. If you ask good questions, it tends to be that get good answers. So it is it is important. So check out the website, of course, beautifulpodcast.com. And uh, if, if you enjoy this episode, I hope you share it with some friends and maybe they'll start to look at things in, in a slightly different way. They start to be a little more critical about the information, about the bombardment of information, which we can receive these days in this so-called age of coronavirus. So let's let's talk about that. This is a beautiful thought. As a wise man once said, teachers come in many forms. And I do think that recent events over this last year with this COVID pandemic and this COVID panic-demic, <laughs> I think there's a, a lot to be learned here. I noticed the other day on Twitter, I, I made this kind of brash comment. I think I'd just woken up and I saw the, this note or this twin tweet that had uh, thousands of likes on it and it was like I went to a dinner party the other night 
15 people attended, 10 of them ended up with COVID. I was like, okay, that's <laughs> like, that's, that seems a bit strange. It definitely is not in accordance with my own experience. And I, I told them, I said, you know, I'm here in Guadalajara. People are going out to clubs every weekend, sometimes legal ones, sometimes illegal ones. People are going to bars, people are having birthday parties. And I got to tell you, people are just not dying in the streets. So don't believe the hype. Now, like I said, it's a little brash, but well, it, it is Twitter, so you have to be concise. And I did, I, I succeeded on that point. But people didn't like that. And I was not expecting the disproportionate response. And suddenly I realized how much people have been affected by this. And I don't mean affected in terms of disease. I mean, in terms of the hysteria. So I got about 100 comments many of them wishing me sickness or death and calling me selfish and irresponsible and all kinds of things and saying, you know, it's only a matter of time before this disease gets you. And I had to think, well, this is just extremely disproportionate because I have been following this quite closely since February in 2020. A friend alerted me to the possibility of this virus and I and uh, started doing a lot of research and, and find out, try to find out what all of the fuss is about. And of course, I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a doctor. What I am is a guy who studied philosophy and, and logic and attempted to practice it and also attempted to read about all kinds of controversial subjects and research them and put the facts together over the last 12 years to try to figure out what's going on in the world. Now, I, I do tend to shy away from making any firm conclusions. In this case, I would say, yes, it is very clear that the response in terms of government responses and in terms of emotional responses in the populace, I definitely say it is disproportionate. So people are reacting in a way that far exceeds the threat. And of course, that is a threat. Emotionally, it's a threat to the quality of life. Because if you are living in fear, or if you are missing opportunities, even if you're not living in fear, some people just say, well, I'll be extra cautious, which is, you know, it's, just, it's fine to do that. It's absolutely fine. Um, but you can miss opportunities because of that if you're exercising a degree of caution that exceeds the risk. And if you are living in fear, that actually puts you at risk of contracting a disease. And that's a fact because when your sympathetic system, the sympathetic nervous system, starts to activate, this is like the... What do they call it? <laughs> I always say fight or flight. That's what people say, but the more accurate term is freeze, flight, fight in that order. The, those are the responses to danger. Now, if you're living in that kind of constant state of fear, 
believing that there's some kind of invisible enemy coming to get you all the time, that means that your body is not going to dedicate the resources to your lungs, your heart, your liver, the ordinary function of your body, the time it needs to repair because it believes that there's always like a tiger around the corner and there is no tiger. And (laughs) uh, even if if COVID were an exceptionally high threat, in that case, I would say it still wouldn't benefit you to be in fear like that because that actually it would be worse because that would mean you're more susceptible to disease. So obviously, I, I think I've made it clear. I've got a bias here or I've got a, well, I've, I've already come to my conclusion. I could put it that way. That So if somebody, like if I get into a conversation with somebody, that's that's where I'm coming from. You're going to know. I think this is an exaggeration. It's blown out of proportion. But I don't intend to present something like you have to trust me. You don't have to see it my way. I'm not here to convince you of that. What I'm trying to do is give you a few questions, a few tools that you can use to apply to the information you receive so you can decide for yourself and you don't have to rely on me or my authority or the authority of my sources or anything like that. That's what I want. So you can think for yourself. Of course, I'm here trying to create this podcast so people can improve the quality of their lives by improving their mental hygiene. Now, if, if I give you all these great tools for happiness and meditation and calm and contentment and relaxation, and then you're lacking in discernment and you turn around and hear the news and the news is telling you that everything is terrible and it's never going to be the same and all these other things, that's going to be a problem because <laughs> it's going to mean that you're not going to be able to put those things into context and they will probably affect you. So this might, on the surface, maybe some people say, and this doesn't seem related to meditation. Well, as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi once said, so and the initian asked him, what is the most important quality for a student of yoga? And the Maharishi said, the most important quality is discrimination, which is to say, not like not allowing Irish people into a bar. He meant discrimination as in discernment, looking at information, deciding what is valuable and deciding how to pursue it. And if you don't have discernment, then you won't be able to know what's really going in the, on in the world and, and you will be fooled easily. So if you have it, of course, you won't be fooled easily. You'll be able to distinguish between truth and falsehood. And you will live a much happier life because of it, because you'll be able to move more rapidly towards your goals. So I'd like to present you these three jewels. Well, all right, they're not jewels, but they are three tools. The three tools are these questions. What is the agenda? Second question, what is the context? And the third question, what is the content? So... What is the agenda? Now, you may have heard of this phrase. If it bleeds, it leads. 
Now, I suppose with many people, maybe it hasn't fully occurred to them what this phrase means. Of course, it's referring to media. It means if they have something sensational or even horrifying, that's what's going to appear in the headlines. That's what's going to come up first on the nightly news, because that's the thing that's most likely to get people to stick around. So humans have a bias towards terrible information, towards sensational and and horrifying information. Some say that's an evolutionary bias because we tend to survive more if we're overcautious. But of course, now being conscious beings, conscious intelligent beings with divine light shining within us, we can go beyond that so we don't just have to stick with our evolutionary or our bodily biases. We, we don't have to continue to be manipulated. We can use our intelligence, our discernment to figure out what's going on, accurately assess the risk and take action accordingly. The fear doesn't necessarily need to enter in. If it bleeds, it leads. So the news knows that if they play these sensational stories, then you're more likely to stick around and watch the TV or click on their website. So they have this motivation. They want you to be afraid. Now, you might think a lot of people kind of assume that the news is there to tell you what's going on in the world. And that's part of their purpose. But really, a show that's on TV is is a TV show. And they're looking for ratings. They're looking to improve their viewer share and to increase their advertising revenue. And the same goes for many websites. There are rare independent journalists who are more interested in the truth than money. And if you find some of those, well... Maybe you should value them highly. Uh, And, you know, some of them manage to make money in alignment with that truth. But many of them, well, you know what they say? It's hard to get a man to see something when his salary depends on him not seeing it. So if there's a conflict between the truth and the money, a lot of the time the money wins out because the, of course, the organizations that do not pursue money tend to be short-lived. You need money to continue to run a website or a newspaper or whatever it is. So these organizations have this bias. What is their agenda? They want to make money and they want you to be afraid. Well, they don't necessarily want you to be afraid, but this is their byproduct of their medium. So truth isn't necessarily the, f- the first thing there. Now, I hope I can not just make that argument, but I hope I can ask you, is that the case? Is that what you see in the news? Does it comply with your own experience? And does it comply with your own reason? Ask, what really is the agenda? And when you see an article, maybe... Maybe they that it's not all about fear, or maybe it is. Maybe they have multiple agendas. But the problem is, of course, if. <laughs> all right, it's, it's important to note. 
that just because somebody wants you to be afraid, that doesn't mean what they're saying is false. Just as if somebody has your best interest in mind, that doesn't mean they're necessarily telling the truth. Their motivation isn't a clear argument. It's, it's not a conclusive argument to say it's true or false. But if somebody is trying to make you afraid and you know they're trying to make you afraid and you believe them anyway, believe them without thinking maybe there's another side to this, you may be a sucker. You, you may be misled quite easily. So <laughs> it is important to think, well, if they, if they do have this motivation, maybe there's something else to it. And of course, governments and other organizations, they also have their motivations. Some people would say to me, well, governments want tax revenue. So they want their herd or their cattle or their populace, their taxpayers, <laughs> to make more money. So they actually want these people to be employed. And if something goes against that, then it's clear that they're doing it for a good reason. Now, I think that's some overly simplistic logic. I think governments, just, just like media organizations, just like individuals in general, have a complex array of motivations. You know, there are good people in government with good intentions and fine discernment and trying to get policies across that will actually help people. There are also populists in government who just care about getting elected again and they don't necessarily care about truth or what is really good for the people. And there are also greedy people in government who are trying to expand their power. And there is that expression, like the expression is never let a good crisis go to waste. Because people know that when something scary happens, that is when people are their most vulnerable to manipulation. So it's not just the case that governments are looking out for us. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe. But, you know, again, it's not up to me. I just want to give you the question. All right. And, you know, you can, again, you can note my bias here. Um, so take that into account. You know, I'm not necessarily telling you the whole truth because that would be impossible. But I, w I would like for people to, to ask these questions when they get information from media organizations, from governments, from international organizations like the WHO. What is their agenda there? And does it really involve benefiting me? Maybe it does in some way and, and maybe it doesn't. And maybe somehow there are a few motivations, some for you and some against you. Again, whatever their motivation doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, but it doesn't necessarily mean you should trust them either if they have uh, ulterior motives. The second question, what is the context? So somebody said to me the other day, I, I said to them, you know, I don't think this COVID thing is actually quite big of a risk. And they said, well, uh, you mean where you are in Guadalajara? I said, no, I mean in the world in general. And they said, ah, you know, I killed 350,000 
people in the United States over 2020? I said, yes, but there's a lot of context that you need to make that figure mean something. So, you know, this expression attributed to Mark Twain, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. (laughs) So if we just have a number and we don't know how to interpret it, it is just a number. 350,000 sounds like a big number. Like if you had 350,000 ants in your kitchen, probably wouldn't be that happy about it. But it is just a number until we know how to contextualize it. So for example, the 350,000. Okay. How many people live in the US? About 330 million. So maybe it's a small amount of people dying. How many deaths in the US per year? It's about eight per thousand. And that's been the case a little more than that. But but since about 2009, it's been about eight per thousand. So that means it's about 2.6 million people who die in the US every year. I know it's, you know, it can be tragic, but these are the facts. This is what's normal, in fact. So if we look at that, we say, all right, 350,000, that means there's 2.3 million who did not die of COVID. In fact, they died of something else. So is it a big number? Well, it's it's a significant percentage, but it's not huge. It's, it's not any more disastrous than any other year, right? And we ask, how many people die in the U.S. of medical malpractice? It's about 500,000 every year. How many people die of heart disease? About 600,000 every year. So is 350,000 a large number? Well, it's, it's a significant number. It's a lot of people. But it's not outside the ordinary. But then we say, okay, how many deaths worldwide? Okay, so 1.8 million people in a year died of COVID. That sounds pretty serious. 56 million people die every year. So in that context, again, it doesn't seem like such a big number. How many people die of the flu every year in the US? It's about 60,000. So 350,000 sounds quite a lot compared to the flu. Worldwide, the flu kills about 800,000, between 500 and 800,000 every year by flu. 1.8 million deaths by COVID in comparison. It seems like a large number, but not catastrophic, not so grave that, that you would turn over a table and, and start yelling at people, right? Is it, it, it's not that grave. How many people every year die of AIDS? It's about 1.2 million. Now, do you think that the response is proportional? So is it like what people have done, what governments have done for COVID, would they do one third of that for influenza? Would they do two thirds of that for AIDS? My friend Katie Kelly suggested maybe people should support a sex ban because AIDS spread by, supposedly spread by the HIV virus and it's sexually transmitted disease. If 
it's worth shutting down whole economies and nearly shutting down whole economies based on this disease that caused 1.8 million, uh, 1.8 million deaths, then surely it would be worth prohibiting people from having sex or being intimate for 1.2 million because that would be much less restrictive. In fact, it would be less than proportionally restrictive. But nobody thinks about that. Uh, I don't think many people would support that. Of course, the obvious response that many will make is that there weren't as many deaths simply because of the extremity of those conditions, of those measures that governments took. And we have reason to believe that's not true. So I can leave some links in the in the um, description or in the notes on the website if you're curious about that. But the question is, 350,000, is that a lot or is that a little? Well, it depends. It depends what you're comparing it to. And if you're willing to entertain an idea, somebody can present it to you as if it's so many, as if it's a lot, as if it's world-changing. But if you're willing to entertain the other side, somebody can present it as if it's, well, it's quite bad, but it's not actually world-changing. And it depends how well they communicate it, how good they are at persuading you, and how willing you are to listen. So what is what is the context? What's, when you see a figure like that, or when you hear a particular fact about something, what is the context? I'll give you another example. Now, let's say I were to tell you that there is this horrible disease. It's killing and it's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people over the next year, and it can actually cause brain damage, it can cause lung damage, it can cause the loss of taste, smell, it can cause you to lose your hair, and it's just killing so many hundreds of thousands of people. Do you know what that disease is called? It is called the flu. It's called influenza and we all live with it and we accept it as a part of our everyday life. Now, if I were to take one of these facts out of context and tell you there's a new disease that is causing brain damage and lung damage and loss of smell and hair, then it might sound extremely scary. Just because, once again, we haven't contextualized the information. We don't know what is really normal, what's standard, what is the level of risk that we accept as normal every day. That's why we ask, what is the context? Now, uh, the third question, it's quite simple. <laughs> what is the content? So a lot of the time, news organizations will release a headline and normally what they say, perhaps it's an excuse for the journalists, but the headline is chosen by the editor. So the journalist will write the article and the editor will write a headline which will give it the most chance of getting views. Again, if it bleeds, it leads. So there's a high probability that they're going to choose an explosive, sensational headline just to get people to click. Now, a lot of the time people make the mistake 
of believing the headline. And what happens a lot of the time, you read the article and people will send me articles saying, look at this, you know, you, you don't think this is bad? Have a look at this article. And I see the, the article and the headline is sounds really bad. But when I read the article, it tells a very different story and it might actually have a more balanced view than the headline. It might actually tell both sides of the story and it sounds like, well, it's not really clear if it's extreme one way or another. <laughs> or it might actually have the exact opposite, uh, the exact opposite data in there or the exact opposite information to the headline and then attempt to spin it and then attempt to give it some other context so you believe the opposite of what is stated. I see this all the time, but you need to slow down and read what is really being written. There was something that happened to me many years ago. All right, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but it's a bit it's a bit strange. And uh, maybe it will demonstrate my point or maybe it'll make me appear like more of a crackpot. But it's true, so I'll be authentic. What happened was I heard about the this stuff... Uh, they call it free man on the land or like some people call it sovereign citizen, which is a, a misnomer. There's no such thing. That's a, that's an oxymoron. Uh, but the idea is like governments are somehow manipulating us to believing they have more authority than they do and convincing us to, to go along with it and consent with statutes, which aren't actually laws. That's that's the idea. And I thought hmm, this idea is very interesting. I wonder maybe there's a way that I, I could disprove it or prove it, perhaps. So I have this hypothesis and I, I say, okay, I'm going to try to do what some of these people have told me. And I sent a letter to the Australian Taxation Office and I said, listen, I, I need to know, is there anything you're claiming that I must do or anything that you're claiming that I cannot do? Because according to me, as a, as a living human being, this is the kind of kind of stuff they say, I'm not obligated to do anything for, for anybody. And if you have a document, like a statute, then I, I don't necessarily need to follow it unless you can prove to me otherwise. If you can show me that this document and, and your organization actually has this authority, then please show me. Please prove it to me. And I waited about six months. I thought, okay, I guess they're just not responding. I sent the letter, addressed it to the commissioner of the ATO, the Australian Taxation Office. Six months later, I get this reply from the deputy commissioner of the ATO. And I have a look at it and I read it the first time. And I think, ah, oh, okay, I guess this is... This is fine. So I guess this maybe they actually do have this legal authority uh, because it's saying that it's it's very important that I have to pay taxes and I have to uh, comply with this statute or one one must comply with this statute. It didn't actually say that I had to, um, and it said that other people had been successfully prosecuted under these statutes. Uh, but of course, my question was uh, on the second reading. I realized. They never said to me, 
you must comply. They never said that these statutes apply to you. Uh, so they never answered my question. Now, this is the kind of thing that occurs in political language. Now, whether that actually means that the ATO doesn't have any legal authority without your consent or anything like that, uh, I don't know. That, that, that's another question. But this is the kind of thing that organizations, government and, and international organizations and, and even the media, they will do. Even something kind of sneaky, kind of nasty that we used to do in direct sales, which is called lying by omission, which is, of course, it was classed as unconscionable conduct. But it's like if the customer has some concept about the product and you just allow them to continue believing it, then that's called lying by omission. Or even they go, they go a step further. It's not it's not just lying by omission. They deliberately phrase things in a way to lead you to believe something without ever lying. So you might know this example from Atlas Shrugged, the, the book by Ayn Rand. What happens is Hank Reardon comes away with a new alloy which is super strong and he wants to make it, use it to make train tracks. And the Organization of American Engineers or whatever publishes an article about it and they say things like, it is unclear whether this, <laughs> this steel or this metal will actually succumb to pressure and cause the deaths of, of millions of people who ride on these railroad tracks or something like that. And they never actually say this is dangerous and they never say this is safe, but they try to give the, the implication. And this is what certain unscrupulous organizations would do. And that's why it's so, so important to pay attention to the content and ask, what are they really saying here? What are they literally saying? And perhaps what is the implication? Because they may try to lead you to believe something that they have not said. So, once again, three questions. What is the agenda? What are people trying to make me believe, perhaps? Or what are they trying to make me feel? What are they trying to achieve? If it's some kind of political goals. What's the context? What are they not saying? What does this fact mean? Without context, is, is it good or bad? Or what other information could I find that would tell me if this is actually normal or not? Um, what's the content? What are they literally saying? Because it's very easy to be misled if you're just willing to read between the lines and not realize that you're doing it. So I hope that people out there will take these three tools and start to look at the media when you're presented with information and try to look beyond the surface and know that perhaps you're being manipulated because what happens when you are aware that somebody is attempting to manipulate you, when that enters your consciousness, Instantly, the spell is broken. 
They're trying to make you a pawn. But you are not a pawn. You are a beautiful individual soul. And you have the capability, this divine intelligence and discernment within you. You can develop it and expose things to the light by using this brightness that is in your mind. You can and you will. I have faith in you. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Oh,